The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. Well, we have a very special guest coming to us from the West Coast and from Microsoft. We are going to be speaking tonight with Chief Privacy Strategist from Microsoft, Peter Cullen. Let me tell you a little bit about him. As GM Trustworthy Computing and Chief Privacy Strategist at Microsoft Corporation, Peter Cullen is directly responsible for managing the development and implementation of programs that bolster the privacy and trustworthiness of Microsoft products, services, processes, and systems worldwide. Peter leads Microsoft's privacy group as well as teams of online safety, geopolitical, and accessibility experts who are all committed to enhancing customer computing experiences. Peter brings more than a decade of experience in privacy and data protection to his role as extensive background in building sound organizational practices. In fact, in 2003, Peter was honored with the International Association of Privacy Professionals Vanguard Award for Privacy Innovation for his contributions to the privacy profession. During his tenure at Microsoft, Peter has been a leading advocate for strong and innovative safeguards for personal information, privacy, and data, as well as technology, services, and processes that enhance trust. He is also a frequent speaker at conferences. I've heard him speak at IAPP myself. He speaks both in the United States and internationally. And before joining Microsoft in July of 2003, Peter Cullen served as the corporate privacy officer for the Royal Bank of Canada. You're going to hear how he says about. He's a real Canadian. He was responsible for influencing initiatives relevant to the RBC Financial Group's strategic approach to privacy. He's a great guy, and he's doing wonderful work for privacy, just taking the lead of corporations. And you can find out more about him and privacy at Microsoft.com, and you can just put in privacy and security and learn what he's doing. You can also go and find out even more about him at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. And I'm so thrilled. Peter, how are you? Well, thank you. Thank you very much. That was a a wonderful intro. Even my mother would like that. Oh, of course. Well, I remember when you got that Privacy Innovation Award. That was great. This show actually got a Privacy Innovation Award. We were like a runner-up to somebody, but just for having an all-privacy show, we got it in 2005. Well, terrific. Congratulations. Tell us, can you explain your amazing role at Microsoft? Sure. It uh, it splits into two major components. Uh, one is like most chief privacy officers or chief privacy strategists, I have responsibility for uh, developing policies and practices that help ensure that we uh, both protect uh, and use appropriately uh, customers' information that we may collect. But the uh, other part of my role, which is somewhat unique uh, to uh, Microsoft is that I also have teams that work on uh, developing, I'll call it the next generation privacy technology that provides protection both for uh, consumers but also for organizations. So it really splits in terms of both the 
the uh, corporate governance side of things, but also the, the value add uh, to really meet what our customers are looking for. You know, Peter, privacy means so many different things to so many different people. You know, I just read a book by Dan Solove, who's a professor of privacy, actually, at George Washington University. He just wrote a book called Understanding Privacy. And in it, there were so many definitions of privacy. What does privacy mean to Microsoft? Well, it means, in in simple terms, uh, one word, uh, trust. Uh, We know that for uh, all of our customers to take uh, the best advantage of the technology that we provide, uh, they need to have a a level of trust, trust that uh, the system is going to operate securely, but also, more importantly, trust that the information they may give or use as part of that uh, technology uh, is going to be protected and used appropriately. So since trust is a a core part of of, uh, what we believe in, uh, privacy by extension becomes a core part of uh, the way the company operates. I know you have a wonderful set of, you know, looking online at your website, I saw a lot of things on privacy and security and how to protect your computer. Really great stuff, more than most other companies have, so I applaud you for that. Thank you. What is Microsoft doing to protect customer privacy? We've, we've come to understand that uh, even though we're a technology company, there are, are many other investment areas that, uh, that we think are uh, important to help uh, protect um, customer privacy. So it, it does start off with core bits of technology. So you can think about an example of, of uh, the phishing filter, which helps protect people from uh, inadvertently going to uh, known bad sites, known sites where phishing can happen. But there are at least two other areas that we, uh, we think about in terms of uh, privacy investments. One very, very important area is education. Uh, we would provide uh, lots of information for how people can protect themselves that's available uh, on uh, Microsoft.com slash protect. But we've also uh, partnered with many other players in the field, advocacy organizations, uh, even government agencies, to help uh, provide that information to other consumers. The third uh, leg of, I'll call it our three-legged investment stool, is actual partnerships with uh, other players in the industry. Uh, So you can think about... um, the anti-spyware group, uh, to a host of other organizations that we've either started or belong to. Like the anti-phishing working group? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I'm a member of that. Uh-huh. The, the model really is is that you know we're a, we're a big player, but we are just one player uh, in the ecosystem, and we, we, we believe anyways that uh, it's, it requires partnerships with a whole bunch of interested players to develop that overall trust in the, in the computing ecosystem. You know, for, for our, our listeners who might not be as intimately familiar with the topic of privacy, and, you know, we have people that drive by and maybe they listen and, and they're not really sure, explain for us the current privacy landscape out there on the Internet. Well, I think it's really complex. Um, we used to think about privacy as relating to things like name, address, uh, credit card number, social security number. Uh, now we are thinking about privacy in terms of all sorts of other data for example, IP addresses. So I think uh, uh, as more and more of us use uh, online services, uh, online uh, products, we think uh, or at least wonder about where our information is going and who's going to use it. So that's kind of one level of complexity. The other uh, more serious level of complexity is that um, just as information uh, is uh, provides with, with value, it also provides um, huge value for criminals. Uh, so we have to think about uh, protecting ourselves online just the same way as we think about protecting ourselves uh, uh, when we drive a car or uh, go downtown. Exactly. So who do you think is really responsible for protecting privacy? Well, I think we all share a role in this. Certainly, uh, Microsoft uh, believes that uh, we have a role to play in helping uh, protect privacy. It it really explains uh, many of the investments that we make uh, in this area. Uh, we think that uh, governments, regulators, uh, other uh, non-governmental organizations play a role in this. But we also do believe, and, and uh, this has actually been borne out by some research, is that um, you know, all of us, including consumers, play a role in, in helping to protect our own privacy. So it's just not simple to say that it's one person. We all have a role to play in this space. Exactly. You know, I, I, I really hesitated, for example, signing up for Facebook, you know, and everybody's been sending me these emails, sign up for Facebook, and I wanted to see 
uh, some pictures of some cousins and some people that I knew years ago. And the only way I could do it was to sign up for Facebook. But the first thing I did was look up for look at the privacy policies and look at how I could, you know, set up some parameters and some boundaries. And oh, goodness, you really have to be pretty savvy if you're going to use a lot of these different uh, social networking and, and other things. It gets tough, though, for most consumers. We're not you know, we're not techies. What do you think about that? Well, I, I, I often use uh, my mother as an example, uh, who uh, after many, many years uh, just uh, purchased and arranged for her first PC no more than a year ago. God bless uh, her. <laughs> and so, you know, I think about in terms of uh, how do we, how do I make sure that um, she's set up to have a safe online experience, uh, but also educated in a way to have a safe online experience, much the way as a, a parent might um, uh, help teach their younger children or a teenager about how to be a, a safe online citizen. You know, that means, uh, for example, not giving away personal information um, online, just like the way you described uh, the thoughtful way you approached uh, the Facebook. It means thinking uh, about about uh, who you're going to share information with and for what purpose. And I, I think this is perhaps at one level intuitive, uh, but in online space uh, it, it requires us to, to think about things in a, perhaps a more conscious way than, the, than uh, what we're used to. And someone like your mother and someone like me who really didn't get computers until my son was in seventh grade and taught me about computers, do you know? You know, for us, it isn't as intuitive as maybe the young kids. It's intuitive. They can pick up the computer. They can do anything right away because they grew up with it. So I think it's a, a bit more of a challenge for people who haven't really been online. I did a speaking engagement for about 150 senior citizens just the other night. And just speaking with them about asking them what are they doing, they were really kind of clueless. So it's a great, it's <laughs> and, a great and example. And it's protecting them, you know? Yeah, today uh, over 50% of the world's PC users are over the age of 50. Uh, mm -hmm. And so for many of these people, uh, this is a, a brand new online experience. So it, it, it means uh, being educated. It means uh, having tools uh, and resources available to, to help provide the safest online experience where um, all of the rich applications can be enjoyed. You know, Peter, you would have gotten a kick out if they had a, um, a it was this group at a it wasn't an assisted living. It was just a senior community, and they had their own computer classes and their own computer association, and it was it was really adorable. They were teaching each other about anti-spyware and phishing and vishing and all sorts of stuff. It was it was really great. It was it was fun. We're speaking with Peter Cullen, who is GM Trustworthy Computing Group and Chief Privacy Strate Strategist. Excuse me for Microsoft Corporation, and he is based in Washington, and you'll hear his wonderful accent from Canada, and we're so glad that he's with us. Let's talk about privacy in terms of what you all have learned about people and consumers and customers. How much do they really care about privacy? You know, it means, uh, as you said earlier, it means different things to different people, and there's a range of uh, attitudes from uh, what I'll call a privacy fundamentalist who, who thinks very, very hard and, and uh, has very pointed views about uh, sharing of information and who can have it, to I'll call it the less privacy uh, concern that uh, perhaps doesn't give it the same amount of thought. This is, this is one of the challenges of, of uh, designing everything from uh, privacy technology to, uh, to education. But what we do know is that um, consumers think about being safe online, uh, and uh, they mix words like privacy, security, online safety into that. So we tend to not so much focus on, on uh, whether it's uh, private or secure, but we think about in terms of how can we provide the an environment, uh, technology, uh, and an ecosystem that really provides that level of online safety that all of us want. And that gets back to your trust. You know, Absolutely. You, you feel trust if you feel safe. And if you don't feel safe, then you're not going to trust. And if you extend that to, you know, why this is important is that, that we know that uh, uh, when people are, are trusting, uh, they tend to take more advantage of uh, some of the rich offerings of the rich online services that, that are available to us. So trust is very, very important. Right. I got to ask you, are you a techie? And how did you become one? 
No, I'm not a techie. <laughs> and uh, as I say to uh, to my team, I'm the closest thing to a customer they've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> That's why you're there. You're so good. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but I think you know it. It, it actually is. Uh, it doesn't require um, a great. Um, you know, a computer science degree in order to uh, to think about what's important to the the customer. Uh, I think that perhaps it's an advantage to be able to approach it from uh, very much from a consumer's point of view. Exactly. I think that you know, if you come from a privacy and security and and that kind of trusting background and setting up a trusting organization, it, you could do that in any company. I mean, we have chief privacy officers in every kind of company they is, they, there is, and they don't necessarily come from knowing the scientific aspects or the, or the technology. It's, it's, I think it's great. But you probably have learned a lot, right? Well, I think that the, the, <laughs> it, it, what's fascinating about this uh, particular space is that um, – uh, it changes uh, sometimes daily, and uh, the way that I kind of think to, to, as a metaphor for that, if we, we think about the term phishing, um, that actually the word didn't exist three years ago. Exactly. Uh, and so the space is changing uh, very rapidly. Um, online advertising is a reality today. It wasn't necessarily a, as much of a focus uh, two years ago. So it's a, it's a very fast-moving area. Exactly. So online search anonymization, it seems to be a real hot issue when we talk about privacy. First, could you explain what anonymization is, and then we can talk about Microsoft's view? Sure. Uh, anonymization, real simply, is a, is, a, is a way of transforming a data, uh, for example, a per, uh, something that could be personally identifiable in a way that uh, cannot be linked back to a specific individual. Uh, and uh, it's... If you think about uh, data, uh, there's you need to be able to do one of two things, either uh, or one of three things actually, is is keep it around so because it's still uh, part of a process that the consumer wants, uh, or you may need to keep it for uh, business operations purposes, or the other alternative is that you need to delete it. Uh, one way of making sure that it's deleted is to make it anonymous or certainly not linkable back to an individual. Right. Right. And, and there's some people that now um, use different software programs so that they can actually surf in an anonymous way. Yeah, there are there are uh, a number of uh, products that um, that uh, are available. Um, many of them are, are sort of add-ons, or, or or you can buy them, for example, that uh, provide a different level of of privacy protection. Right, and there's the there's this double-edged sword about if you anonymize yourself on one hand, that's good because you have private information you can serve or you can do whatever you want. And then on the other hand, when you intend to do bad for those people who have evil minds, they can anonymize themselves and that can be dangerous, right? Well, there's, yeah, there's definitely two sides to anonymous. And there's also, you know, many transactions that we would do online where we uh, we don't really want uh, to be anonymous. Uh, for example, if I'm doing uh, online banking, uh, I want to make sure I have a, a secure and, and trusted and known relationship not just uh, that I know who I'm going to uh, in the bank, but also that the bank knows me, because obviously that's a value to make sure right. that... Uh, if I want to transfer money, they better know who I am. Absolutely, <laughs> and I want to make sure it's me and not somebody else. Exactly, exactly. So what is Microsoft's view on this subject? As you know, that, that's going to be a, a hot issue, I think, for a long time. Well, if you think about search, uh, you know, we, we, we impart into search engines a lot of our innermost um, uh, thoughts, our feelings, uh, as, as some would suggest that these are data that uh, I may not share with uh, even uh, my closest friend. And so we've thought about uh, how can we provide um, a great search engine that provides relevant information but at the same time as, as uh, protects privacy. So when we think about search anonymization, uh, we think it's uh, not only about the, the date in which that data uh, is, that's collected is, is uh, deleted, but also the manner of anonymization. But the way that we actually put into play is that we take steps uh, right from the uh, outset to make sure that um, uh, a search query that someone enters on uh, Windows Live Search is never associated with anything that could be personally identifiable. So it's a way of thinking about designing privacy into the uh, process of the product right from the start. Right, especially when you think when you might worry that you or someone in your family has some dreaded disease, so you might be searching online to find out about that, and you wouldn't want that to be known to somebody else. That, that, that's, that's certainly part of it, uh, or at least you want to have some control about how that information is used. 
Right. And a lot of people don't realize that they can go in and make some changes in their online experience when they're on, you know, when they're online and they're searching through Microsoft's products. Why don't you tell them a little bit about that? Well, one of the biggest uh, things is that uh, uh, search is also related to advertising, meaning that uh, if I'm searching for uh, something, particular information, uh, one of the values of a search engine is that it provides uh, information associated with what I might be looking for. Uh, and uh, what we wanted to do is to be able to, in the case of online advertising, is be able to give customers, give consumers the choice about whether they wish to receive targeted advertising or wish to just have, call, call it the plain vanilla advertising. Uh, and this is part of a, a long-standing belief that uh, we think that uh, consumers should have control over how their information is used and, and, and have control over their own experiences. So today, uh, anybody can choose uh, not to have targeted advertising um, uh, displayed to them, uh, which is a way of, of uh, putting that control and choice in the consumer's uh, lap. Right, right. And I think the the issue is for those of you who are listening, think about going into those options and making those choices and knowing what you're doing. Because if you don't, then, you know, you can't really complain. I think uh, companies like Microsoft and other companies try and give you choices. And the issue for us is to educate ourselves about those choices and make choices that really work for us. We're speaking with a wonderful chief privacy officer. He's actually the chief privacy officer and strategist for Microsoft. Actually, his title is GM Trustworthy Computing and Chief Privacy Strategist at Microsoft Corporation. He's a great guy. He's won awards, does wonderful speaking. I've heard him speak myself, and we're thrilled to have him on. So let's, let's talk a little bit about one of the things that I'm an expert at, and that is identity theft. And it is a concern. I mean, I get people writing us emails, calling us all the time. And there is a big concern about identity theft online. What's Is that a legitimate concern for them? Well, it's legitimate in the sense that people are worried about it. And if you think about uh, any area that um, someone is worried about, it means that they're uh, perhaps not getting the full benefit of a particular service or application. In other words, they're, they're holding back. So it's absolutely a big concern. Uh, what uh, what we, we, we try and do is, is invest in education, uh, invest in technology uh, that really helps um, protect the, uh, the consumer. And, and while it's no question that uh, criminals, even organized crime, are, are really thinking about information as a call of the currency of crime, um, it also doesn't mean that this is hopeless. Uh, all of us have uh, of ways in which we can help um, have uh, a much safer online experience and, and mitigate ourselves from those sorts of things. And kind of the, the, the analogy I like to think about is, is that, you know, cars have become super safe. Uh, we have now have airbags everywhere. We wear seat belts. Uh, we obey uh, traffic signs. But uh, it doesn't mean that we are totally uh, safe from ever being in an accident. And, and the, the same is true in online. Uh, there are lots of threats out there, but uh, for we can take some, all of us can take uh, some steps to make sure that we, uh, we have as safe an online experience as possible. Right. We're still kind of in the wild west of the internet, but, but we are starting to learn certain protocols that will protect us. So why don't you share with my audience some things that will protect them online from online scams such as identity theft and other types of scams yeah there, there's things that we can do uh, as individuals and those would consist of uh, never giving out uh, things like a credit card number or a social security number um, online to somebody you don't uh, you don't know in other words no uh, respecting business should ask that information um, in an email for example uh, pretty basic stuff, the same way as we wouldn't give that out at the front door or on the uh, on the uh, telephone or leave it on a piece of paper at a coffee shop. So these are steps that we as individuals can take, uh, making sure we have uh, good, robust passwords. And I, when I say robust, I mean, you know, alphanumeric um, things and not uh, something that could easily be, perhaps easily be guessed. Like a pet name or exactly. something like that, exactly. right? Yeah, on, on the numbers, letters, use at least 8 to 12. That's what I always do. <laughs> On the technology side, we can also take some steps, and that's making sure that uh, we're running up-to-date antivirus protection, uh, that we have things like firewalls turned on, that we always make sure that the software we're using is, is up-to-date with the, the latest versions of it. 
These are just a call of basic um, safe computing uh, practices. Um, and there's a litany of things that we can all do that can really help uh, make us uh, make our online uh, uh, experience as safe as possible. And uh, you know, going back to kind of some of the information we talked about earlier, if you just go to Microsoft.com/protect, uh, there's a whole range of, of uh, tips and tricks that can really help uh, all of us enjoy the safest online experience. Exactly, and people should know that in Microsoft Word, you can password protect your documents that you're going to send, which I always do. So you never want to put anything confidential in an email without encrypting whatever you're going to be doing, especially attachments. So there's a lot out there. It's just a matter of educating yourself, sitting down either with somebody who, like your kid who can teach you, <laughs> or, you know, that's how it was for me, or just playing with it or, or reading the manuals and, and, you know, reading the online help because those are terrific. I mean, I, I've been using... Microsoft products for years and years and love them, but I, I always have to go in and see what is the newest stuff. How do I do this? You know? So let's go back to um, what do you think about how consumers and companies really are dealing with the fight against cyber criminals? How's it going? Well, in, in terms of uh, companies, uh, I think many companies are investing in uh, everything from helping to keep uh, data more secure, uh, and that's done through technology, but also done through uh, educating staff to implementing processes. Uh, companies like Microsoft are investing in uh, in all sorts of, of ways of uh, helping to thwart criminals, including uh, even working with law enforcement to go after uh, kind of known bad actors, uh, as we call them. Uh, consumers in general are certainly uh, becoming more educated uh, in terms of that. So this is this is really just an ongoing, uh, I'll call it a battle for lack of a better term. Uh, the the reality is that um, uh, the prize of personal information is pretty attractive uh, for for criminals, uh, so it's unlikely that they're going to st uh, not stop or, or stop trying to get at that. Uh, but it also means that uh, there are uh, many tools uh, and resources available for all of us to help combat uh, online crime. I think it's kind of a generational thing, too. It seems to me that people who are in my age group, the baby boomers and those older and, and some younger, are are more cautious, uh, more, more worried, maybe because we know of certain ramifications. It seems to me that the younger generation, who some may be listening now, you know, they're sitting here, we're sitting here on the campus of the University of California in Irvine, and I think they get so excited about getting into their social networks and, uh, you know, sharing so many things with people across the world that they're not really conscious of some of the serious and perhaps challenging ramifications of their privacy being invaded or their identity being stolen. What do you think about that? It's, it's a, 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 probably one of the uh, uh, most uh, perhaps misunderstood ways, uh, certainly for somebody that's brand new to uh, online uh, there's a, a, a natural um, tendency to not know everything and, and perhaps put themselves more at risk. But when we've uh, done some research, uh, what we find is that um, the concerns about uh, online safety and the actions that people take really transcends generations. In other words, uh, younger people are, uh, are, in many respects, the same as older people in terms of, of uh, how they think about sharing of information, um, how they're worried about it, and, and even some of these steps that they take to help protect themselves. Right. Uh, is, it, is it true that um, uh, not everybody uh, does everything they possibly can? I think that's also true, whether you're young or old. True, uh, true. Mm -hmm. One of the surprising things about the research was just that, well, we hypothesized that there would be some generational differences. Uh, it turned out to just not be the case. Right. I know the Federal Trade Commission did at least a study on identity theft in last year that they did find that the highest group of um, victims of identity theft was the 18 to 29-year-olds. And some people always think, oh, it's going to be the older generation, but really it isn't because the young people are the ones that get the credit so easy. So when it turns out that it's 18 to 29 and then 20, you know, 39 to 49 and then 29 to 39, it's uh, strange stuff. Well, we're seeing uh, we're seeing this change um, daily. Uh, for example, as more and more uh, our call of uh, our older generation go online, 
Uh, we're seeing uh, criminals uh, do things like what are called affinity attacks, in other words, uh, purporting to be from a social club or a, gr- or a, a gardening organization, perhaps, right. that I might belong to as a way to, to kind of trick people. We, we call it social engineering. Yes. And, and, you know, if we think back, this was the same thing that was happening door-to-door, the same thing that was happening by telephone. It's just the online is just yet another medium for uh, people to be able to exploit. Right, and um, all the offline crimes now they're getting real creative online. Sure, and but this is, gets back to kind of some basic steps that um, you know that all of us can take uh, under our own. It's just uh, uh, being suspicious of uh, anybody that asks for any type of sensitive information um, online is a, is a kind of the first step of saying, "Hmm, put your guard up." Yeah, it's scary because sometimes there's, you know, cyberbullying. I had this this couple that called me that they lived in a um, you know, a community that's a senior living community, and they had a whole group of friends that were on like a little email listserv with them. And her her husband actually never used the internet, but somebody created an email um, with just one of the free emails and said that he was, or she was at the time, they didn't know, that he was actually this woman's husband. And he proceeded to embarrass this woman saying that he was the husband, that he knew all this stuff. <laughs> and um, finally, we found out when the woman and her husband called me, he, she, he said, I never made up this email. It wasn't me. I never would say that about my wife. And we did find out who it was, and it was horrible. But that's kind of revenge stuff. And, and that's even scary. It's very insidious. It's not for monetary gain. It's just to embarrass someone or like what we call cyberbullying. It's a it's a, a large and, and a growing problem. Uh, if you think about uh, cyberbullying that you, or bullying that used to go on in the schoolyard, uh, now right. it's really just enabled uh, by more and more people being online. Uh, so it's a it's a it's a challenge in terms of uh, how to protect. So as a parent, uh, one of the most important things is to have um, discussions with your children about uh, uh, not just how to how to be a good uh, online citizen, but uh, the appropriate steps to protect themselves, for example, not uh, sharing personal information or or not putting pictures up that might identify um, the individual. Uh, Much the same way as that we, you know, all all grew up learning how to ride a bike safely or drive a car safely. These are just uh, conversations and dialogue that, um, that all parents should have with their children. Right. And that's the part where you say, you know, companies can only do so much. The other side of it is the family and the consumer, the customer. What are they doing? They've got to use some common sense and they have to be educated. Absolutely. We're speaking with Peter Cullen, and he is the Chief Privacy Strategist for Microsoft. He's joining us from the beautiful state of Washington, and we're so thrilled to have him. Let's let's go now to, a, you talked before about target marketing and target advertising. Why don't you explain to my audience what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, if you think many of the... Um the services that all of us enjoy online uh, today uh, are free. Uh, well, in actual fact, uh, they're not free. They, they cost money uh, for companies to be able to uh, develop those services. And much of those services are developed, uh, I'll call it, on the backs of, of advertising. Um, advertisers are, are desirous to reach uh, markets. Uh, many of us are, are online, uh, perhaps reading less, less newspapers or watching less TV now. So it's a, it stands to reason that the online medium is a, an attractive source for advertising. Um, it also uh, stands to reason that um, we as consumers want to have relevant um, a- information about products. And that can range from, I live in uh, the state of Washington where it certainly doesn't snow very much. I'm, I'm probably not a good target market for a snowmobile ad. <laughs> right. Uh, so understanding that I live in the state of Washington means that um, I can at least receive even more relevant ads at, at that level. Maybe boating. <laughs> maybe boating, exactly. And uh, you've, you actually hit on uh, just a kind of a perfect thing, or maybe in the market to buy a car. Uh, and so there's a there's a desire for uh, advertisers to reach um, p- aver- or consumers that are interested in particular products, and there's also a, a desire for consumers to get relevant information. I mean, at a really high level, that's really the principles behind um, targeted advertising. It's delivering ads to groups of people who may, may or not fit into a particular um, group, for example, like a car buyer or a home buyer or a vacation seeker. Right. You know, it all gets back to that issue of trust. 
So if I see something maybe that comes from Microsoft, I've been using Microsoft, I use Outlook, I use Word, I use everything. If I get something from a company that I already have a relationship with, I know, or Amazon, I know, I don't mind get getting that target marketing. It's when I don't know a company that I feel invaded, I feel scared. You've you, you hit on it, and this is uh, back to the principle of trust, of, yeah. of, uh, trust but also uh, providing control um, over those things. So it starts off with uh, uh, companies uh, needing to be very transparent about what information they collect, uh, what they do with it, and, and what are the consumer's choices around that, to actually putting in controls, as we talked about, that say that, um, you know, I, 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 for whatever reason, don't want my information used for this purpose, and, and having companies respect that choice. We, we've, uh, you know, understand, uh, come to understand fully that um, uh, trust for many consumers means being put in control over how their information um, is being used. Right, right. And, and I think people want to have that control. They, they definitely do. They want to have the control, uh, but they also want to receive uh, relevant and value-added services. And right. So many of the consumers that we talk to say, yeah, I understand that that uh, uh, advertising is an important part of this free service that I get. Uh, right. In fact, I also want to get relevant ads. So uh, to a point, I want to make sure that I, I'm seeing things that are of interest, but I also want to have some control over how my information is used. Right. They can Then they get to see how there is an exchange of value. Correct. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about what's been huge, which is the hundreds of widely publicized security and data breaches you know, California was the very first state to have a security breach notification law, which has, I think, been very good because it has really forced companies all over the the, the country, even internationally, even in your beloved Canada, took a, you know took a heed of this. That when you have a security breach, you need to let people know so that they can protect themselves. So we've heard about literally hundreds of widely publicized security breaches. What does Microsoft suggest that companies do to manage these threats? Well, there's a number of things that uh, the companies need to do. Uh, you've hit it right on the head that uh, clearly the fact that we have uh, these large number of breaches means that um, companies aren't fulfilling their obligations to, uh, to help protect data. Uh, but sometimes accidents happen. Uh, in other words, uh, bad things happen to good people um, occasionally. So this is not that companies are deliberately... Uh, going out to uh, lose this uh, this information. And a lot of the times it's not lost, it's stolen. If you think about, you know, Choice Point or TJ Maxx, you know, these are stolen. Absolutely. So you you've, you you hit on it that what the uh, what companies need to do is think uh, very very holistically how they uh, can best protect uh, their customer information. I call it information that their customers have entrusted to use for their value. Uh, it's a very very uh, precious uh, asset that uh, companies need to uh, need to protect. Uh, we happen to support uh, the notion of of uh, providing uh, notice to consumers in the event of a data breach. But we think that there are um, some uh, needs to be very cautious about that. In other words, um, we think it uh, absolutely uh, the smart thing to do, the right thing to do, to let consumers know uh, if they're sensitive information, information that could be used to cause them harm, um, is misplaced or where there's a significant risk of harm to come. What we have to avoid uh, is the, um, I'll call it the proliferation of notices. In other words, if, um, if data breach notices become uh, as uh, profuse as uh, the financial services privacy notices, uh, unfortunately, we fear that uh, they're going to end up in the garbage can, and, and uh, when a consumer should be taking steps to control themselves, uh, they won't because they've been kind of sensitized to receiving these sorts of things. So we have to, this is a, a, a case of where organizations need to uh, do a, a good job of perfecting, perfecting data, and in the uh, case of where, um, where data is lost, uh, they, there needs to be the, uh, the, uh, the right level of notification. I think what I'm really talking about is uh, something that we call data governance. It means the organizations need to have a a solid governance program to help make sure that uh, the data is adequately protected uh, wherever it is in the organization. 
So what do you mean by data governance? That they, they classify the data, they discuss what's collected. Give us a little bit of understanding about that. Well, it starts off uh, at a foundational level of making sure that um, the appropriate levels of security are in place, not just secure uh, securing the data, but also helping to ensure the company from possible attack. You've used uh, some examples of, of some online attacks that have happened in the marketplace right now. So that's what I mean when I talk about a secure infrastructure. But it goes further in thinking about uh, how do you make sure that um, only the right employee has access to the right data at the right time. Uh, that's called a kind of an identity and access management control. Uh, the third layer uh, is making sure that there is um, auditing uh, and compliance processes so that you have a way of checking to make sure the data is both protected uh, and only being accessed by the right place. And, and, and finally, it's uh, using uh, tools to help protect the data. For example, um, establishing rights around a file or even an email to make sure that only the appropriate person can uh, read and have access to these things. So these are these four foundational things that we think about as uh, as part of an effective data governance program that um, all organizations should think through. You know, with the security breach law in California, we tried to have a um, a carrot and a stick when we when we wrote that law, and I was thrilled to be part of that, uh, sitting as an advisor to the Office of Privacy Protection. And what what for those people who uh, I know you know what this what the law is all about. For our audience, though, they should know that. When a company experiences a security breach of certain sensitive data that would include very sensitive data like a social security number, and they find out about this breach and that information had not been encrypted, then they have a duty to notify all potential victims, all right? And I call them victims because they're a victim of a privacy breach. But the, the carrot is if you encrypt the data then you don't have to notify. So um, that that law, which has been copycatted in many states, um, really has forced companies to take better care in just about what you were just talking about, which is protecting the data and having it disguised so people can't use it. What do you think about encryption? Well, it's a great example of, of, uh, of, a, of a possible way to help uh, keep data secure. Uh, one of the challenges comes is that it's uh, much easier to encrypt data when it's at rest, meaning that it's uh, sitting in a, uh, in a file system. You use the example of, of uh, protecting your Word file or, or protecting a folder on your PC with encryption. That's kind of a great example of that. In other words, uh, it's it's the data is not in in movement. It's on your system, so it's it's a very very uh, good way to think about it in terms of encrypting it. It's much more challenging to encrypt data that is um, uh, in, in motion, transit, shall yeah. we say? <laughs> yeah. And and uh, so that that's you know so encryption is one method of of uh, of uh, adequately securing. But there are really a host of other ways. And you know what it, what it, our guidance to enterprise and organizational customers is is that. Think about uh, almost do what we call a 360-degree threat assessment and start to think about um, ways in which you can deploy uh, security technology, uh, security processes, security practices to help mitigate the risk of a loss. But I want to come back to this data breach notification because you, you've, you know, it, it's absolutely an appropriate uh, way to make sure that consumers are protected. But one of the shortcomings is, is that we haven't uh, actually been prescriptive with organizations about how to keep the data secure to begin with. And right, it's right. one of the uh, it is one of the shortcomings of the uh, of the data breach notifications where we're sort of uh, the the metaphor I like to use is that we've uh, talked about or thought about what do we do with the horse once it's left the barn. Uh, what we would advocate is that we need to think about how to secure the barn uh, from the outset and that's one of the core foundational pieces around uh, uh, the guidance that we provide around data governance. Right. But I do think the fact that all these uh, data breach laws have come into effect have made companies much more conscious about making sure that they're protecting. They're, they're really thinking more about it than I think they did before because now there is, you know, some embarrassment. And, you know, I mean, basically they do have a, have a chance to uh, do work on some remedies. It's, it, they don't have a huge amount of liability, except for maybe a lot of embarrassment if it's in a public breach of, you know, 100,000 people. 
Yeah, it's it's uh, certainly uh, you know created an awful lot of of uh, embarrassing moments, shall we say? Um, what, but but I think what you know we use an example of some of the companies that have experienced um, I'll call it the online breaches, and this is a this is a kind of an example of where uh, the criminal side of of the uh, the world is um, starting to become a lot more lot more adventuresome. Yes. Uh, in terms of their targeted attacks, and this just means that. Um, uh, companies themselves uh, need to uh, think differently about the level of security that um, that they are, are are perhaps prepared for. You know, I did a program here in Orange County with a bunch of DAs, and at least in Orange County, what they were finding, which was kind of a shocking number to me, and I don't know if this is nationally, but they said 60 to 70 percent of the identity theft cases that they have dealt with online and offline have been unscrupulous employees. And so that that tells you something too. What do you think of that? Well, today, uh, whether it be uh, you know consumer identity theft or organizational loss, um, it's it's still uh, thankfully for the most part, um, I'll call it uh, pretty standard stuff. In other words, yes, uh, employee theft is is uh, at least from the data that I've seen has been the you know one of the the largest uh, uh, causes of data breaches in organizations. In terms of consumers, um, identity theft is is still, uh, on a percentage-wise basis, um, uh, purported by family members uh, or friends. Well, let me let me explain that one, okay? Because I I just need to explain that one for people to understand. Javelin just did a study that they came out with, and they've come out with ones previously, and that is they said that of the people who knew how their identity was stolen, they thought about fifty percent knew. But the Federal Trade Commission and other studies have shown that very few people ever find out who did it to them. About 10% of all victims have found out what, who has done it to them. And they say, the Federal Trade Commission says, only about 12% of all of the identity theft is family members or people you know. So you got to be careful with Javelin's new study because if you read it carefully and you and you talk with them, they'll tell you yes, oh, oh that half, that fifty percent, ha- goes to how many people who actually find out who did it to them find yes. out that it's family members because it's easier to find out about family member because I have a guy who I just helped with a bunch of identity theft. It was his stepdad, and he found out that his stepdad, who was living where he used to live. Um, all of the new accounts had gone to that old address, and that's how he found out it was his stepdad. So you got to be real careful with that one. Yeah, I think we're, what we're really talking about is the, uh, the I'll call it the shifting sands of, uh, of things, and it's pretty clear uh, to us anyways that the the future of, of uh, online crime is going to be online. Yes. Uh, as opposed <laughs> to kind of more the, the more uh, physical uh, types, types of things. And you know, this is why, you know, uh, going back to kind of ways in which we can protect ourselves becomes so important of, of uh, keeping that software up to date, uh, making sure you're running antivirus protection, uh, the firewalls are turned on. Uh, one of the, the tools that, 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 um, that we provide um, all of our customers, uh, in fact, most customers aren't even aware of it, is something called the Malicious Software Removal Tool. And it uh, regularly uh, checks people's machines to uh, clear off what I'll call uh, unwanted or, or malicious software. And uh, we're seeing uh, just a dramatic rise in the number of machines that are so-called infected, and then uh, perhaps a significantly uh, a number a rise in the number of machines that are infected on a continual basis. So it's just kind of an evidence of just how uh, sophisticated the online uh, attacks um, are becoming. Now, if I have that, and I have all Microsoft on my, and I have the um, automatic updates and everything, Correct. I have yep. all that, and I keep it on, I keep all my computers on all the time, and I have, you know, the firewalls and everything, antivirus, anti-spyware, but are you saying to me, do I, help me understand this, with this malicious software removal tool, is that when I, am I already signed up for it if I'm already um, a, a customer and I've got this automatic update is that on there or do you I are to... getting it for free oh good uh, in fact uh, <laughs> we we clean somewhere uh, north of uh, 40 million machines uh, every month uh, from having so-called bad uh, software on it and uh, that that is done automatically for you um, totally in the background you're not even aware of it wow so um, 
I don't get notification or anything. No, it's um, it's done. It's it's much the same way as a as a as a uh, anti spyware engine or an antivirus engine um, happens on your PC right now. It's just cleaned automatically for you. Yeah, although I think with uh, with my Norton, I do once in a while. They'll tell me I got something, but it's cleaned up and fixed. I'll get a little note. That'd be the marketing side of Norton. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, but it's but it's an, it is an important strategy, saying that not only is the software working, but um, but it uh, either found nothing or it did actually find something and cleaned it for you. Oh well, so those of you who are using Microsoft products and you have your automatic updates and you leave on everything all night, you got this free great product that we're hearing from the chief privacy strategist. Terrific. So, how does Microsoft protect the data that it collects? Well, we invest uh, obviously uh, uh, pretty heavily in in uh, securing our own network, uh, both in terms of uh, the data that we hold, uh, but also um, uh, the uh, the actual network itself. Uh, as you can probably imagine, um, there's quite a few people that uh, uh, launch attacks at Microsoft, uh, looking to see just how secure we are. Uh, so it's a it's a full time job for a large number of people to help make sure that our network is uh, not only safe but um, always up and running, just simply because that's uh, the dependency that customers have on us. But we also d- uh, think about security in terms of the training that we provide our employees. Uh, so, for uh, uh, example, in the uh, privacy space, um, any uh, employee that has um, access to customer data has to go undergo mandatory privacy training. And background checks, I would imagine. Yeah, in terms of new employees, absolutely, yes. Um, it, it, certainly in this country. Yes. Um, in um, uh, the other uh, area that we kind of we invest in is is a little bit about um, uh, securing the data. And you talked, we talked a little bit about it in terms of encryption. Um, when uh, sensitive data is is uh, having to be uh, transmitted inside our company, it's often done using uh, what we call the rights management. Uh, protection, which is a, a level of security around the data that only people with certain credentials uh, can have access to. So there's just a host of different ways dependent upon the uh, the uh, security need of the particular data. Well, I, I know that you guys have done so much, and you are the leaders in this. You really are. Well, thank you. And, and I appreciate that. California recently declared um, on January 28th um, that they had the California Data Privacy Day and uh, can you explain what that Data Privacy Day entails? I know that Microsoft, from, from looking at your website, I see that you were really involved. Yeah, it started uh, last year, uh, really um, an initiative out of the European Union, was uh, to think about one day where we could uh, focus on uh, education around privacy. And uh, this year um, it took on a, uh, an added significance with um, Many other countries, the U.S., Canada, for example, officially joining um, Data Privacy Day, and as you mentioned, the uh, uh, the state of California also declaring that it was a Data Privacy Day. But it was a way for um, organizations, for individuals, uh, for uh, governments, NGOs as well, to come together to to um, focus on on uh, how do we enhance privacy. Uh, so we did a a number of events. The uh, the one in in, in California was. Um, uh, a session in San Francisco that released some research that we've done uh, across um, three different segments of consumers uh, and really had a town forum about what does this uh, research uh, lo- mean to us, uh, how do we all think about privacy, and how can we how can we grow privacy protection. So you did some focus group research. and What did you find? Were there some interesting aspects of that? Yeah, the the most surprising thing was uh, was the hypo- we had a hypothesis that there would be differences between the three age groups, uh, and it turns out that they uh, they actually thought about things uh, very similarly, hmm. and they could be bucketed into um, uh, three things. One is there was this uh, uh, sense of of uh, almost uh, resignation in the sense that uh, all of us use online services, all of us share information, and we we know that it provides a great deal of value, but we're not all comfortable that we understand how that information is, is used and protected, but nevertheless, we still share information. Uh, so that was kind of one finding. Uh, the other uh, finding was uh, an interesting one in the sense that many people purported to use tools to help uh, protect themselves, but they, uh, they admitted that they really didn't understand how they worked and they weren't necessarily sure they were using them correctly, um, things like antivirus protection or anti-spyware protection. Uh, the final thing, which was um, 
uh, I won't necessarily call it surprising, but it was uh, pleasantly confirming, uh, was that all three of these age groups, uh, so these age groups were, um, I'll call it the 20 to 23-year-old, the the, uh, mid-age person, 35 to 40, and then the over 50 group, all three of these age groups felt that they shared some responsibility in helping to protect uh, their own privacy. Well, well, that's good. But they also, do I understand correctly, that they also wanted more transparency? They actually want not just more transparency, but they want more education. Ah. And so this is the, uh, the, the message to us was, uh, was almost to redouble our efforts to, to uh, help make sure that uh, some of the education materials that we provide uh, is uh, made even more accessible. Right. I think, uh, you know, at least in the elementary and the junior high and the high school and and now the community colleges, I think we need to even have more of these community-based education for people that are, you know, for people who aren't in school anymore as well. So tell me, we're getting near the end, and what is the future of Privacy Online? Well, I think the future of Privacy Online can be uh, summed up in in, uh, kind of – two different ways. Um, it's absolutely clear that um, uh, the, the desires for bad people to get at personal information is not going to go away. Um, there's just too much at, at stake here. Um, but what it's also clear is that through advances in technology, advances in education, advances in uh, companies like Microsoft partnering with other people, that um, uh, we're going to continue to invest in, in helping to uh, make sure that people do have that uh, private, safe, um, online experience. And both of those things are, are uh, going to exist and that we all have a role to play. So if you had your druthers, what would you like to see happen personally in, in terms of privacy online? Well, I'd, I'd obviously like to have all of the uh, the uh, criminals go away and just uh, crawl <laughs> under a rock. Uh, but uh, oh, can't from... you use your magic wand? From... <laughs> <laughs> well, I... I, I what I'd like to see is that we, we get uh, even more successful at uh, making sure that people uh, feel very confident that they can enjoy the, the rich richness of the Internet that the technology uh, provides for us and can do so in, a, in an absolutely safe way. That would be my wish. Well, if you got your mother all excited about it, you can get the rest of us all excited about it, right? She's uh, saying, I don't know, I don't understand why it took me so long to do this. Of course, <laughs> I've, I've done the right thing and, and resisted the temptation to say, I told you so. <laughs> oh, that's terrific. Well, we thank you so much. You are wonderful, Peter Cullen, and we hope to talk to you again soon. Well, thank you for inviting me. Okay, we'll talk to you later. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host. Join us every week from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on Privacy Piracy, 88.9 FM Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Also, visit our website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy, where you can see our upcoming guests. You can listen to archived interviews. You can download podcasts. And also, why don't you write us an email and tell us what you want to know about privacy in the information age. Thank you, Amanda, and thank you. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI, 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm also privileged to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips, and we have a treat for you today. We are going to be speaking with Mark Jonathan De Jesus, who is the video producer for the Orange County Sheriff's Department, and he's been with the department for about 10 years. Thank you for joining us, Mark. Hey, Mari. How you doing? Great. So tell us, what does the video production unit do? Well, essentially, we serve the media production-related needs of the department. And I know that sounds like a sort of generic ladybug description, but you know, our day-to-day operations are pretty wide-ranging, as most of our work coincides with the needs of the department. 
And as you know, I work for a pretty big agency, so our workload can vary tremendously. You know, maybe to help clarify a bit more, uh, let me just give you some quick examples of projects we've worked on from this past year. We produced 30-second recruiting commercials that were broadcast on TV and streamed on the Internet. We've worked with investigators in helping solve over a dozen video forensic cases. We've worked with City of Aliso Viejo in producing a skateboard helmet safety video which basically was made to educate the public on the importance of wearing your helmet. We produced a pursuit policy video to educate our deputies on the latest laws. So as you can see, our workload, while everything is media-related, the work itself is wide-ranging but serves a specific purpose. How does what you do help our community here? Our unit has and continues to help the community on a number of fronts. A portion of our work deals with educating the public, whether it be about safety or new laws or public awareness issues. Another portion of our work deals with the education and training of our deputies, which of course helps them serve the public better. Yet another portion of our work deals with video forensics, which basically helps catch criminals and as a result makes our streets safer. And you know, from time to time we also work with nonprofit organizations like the uh, Make-A-Wish Foundation on various projects. And uh, I gotta say my job has been equally satisfying as I know that much of what I do directly impacts the community in a positive way. Well, we sure thank you for all that you do. And we're going to have you back next week to talk more about what you do. Thank you so much. Thank you.